Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. The words of our collect this morning, the first prayer that we read that begins the liturgy, so dovetail so beautifully with the words of the gospel. This is an ancient prayer, and the words set the stage. We pray, give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ, and to proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation. And then the gospel reading lets us know what he's talking about, where this call could lead us. This morning, the lesson from Luke is part of the story of Jesus' growing awareness of who he is, whose he is, and what he has been sent for to accomplish in this world. It's not the whole story, it's part, part of the emerging story that will come to fruition in that great event of transfiguration that we'll be preaching about a few Sundays hence. The context today is exciting. It's that old synagogue at Nazareth. It's his hometown congregation, some of whom who had known him for years. I suspect that there were many in the congregation who were rather proud that the carpenter's son had turned out to be okay. In fact, a godly man, spiritually inclined, righteous, and sober, so much so that he was now qualified to serve in worship as a liturgical reader. You can just hear them almost say, why, he's got the call. They must have whispered to one another. Little did they know that not only had the hometown boy received the call for service, he was well into thinking and feeling and negotiating his way through the next step of a vocation. We're talking here of a budding rabbi, one who teaches, maybe a prophet, one who boils over with the love of God, maybe a priest, one who cares with compassion. And could it possibly be that there's even more? Might his vocation entail an even greater dimension? And of course, we know that's precisely the case. At the end of his Galilean ministry of three years, Jesus has his disciples on the hill and he says, who do people say that I am? And Peter has those wonderful words in a confession. We know who you are now. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the anointed one of God, the one who delivers God's people from slavery to liberation, from scarcity to abundance, from death to life. In this short passage that serves as our lesson this morning, Luke gives us an important step in this process of self-awareness. For Jesus, it must have been an epiphany, a burst of light, not only for him as he spoke to the congregation, but for everyone else who watched him. And Luke does it so dramatically. Mount the dais, open the scroll to the sacred text, and then read the word of God as if he were doing so in the first person singular. When he stood up to read, the attendant handed him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Unfurling the scroll, he turned to a very familiar passage, one the worshipers had heard many times over the years. Only this time, the hometown boy reads the passage with an authority the likes of which those who had never heard it read in all their lives. 
It was read with gravity, conviction, identification. It's such so that they must have jumped out of their skins. Some perceived it as inspiration. They were elated. Others were enraged at what they perceived as arrogance, even to the point of blasphemy. Listen to what Jesus said. Hometown boy, 30 years old, he gets up in the pulpit, or in this case, whatever it is in the synagogue. He says, God's Spirit is upon me. He has chosen me to preach the message of good news to the poor. He has sent me to announce pardon to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. Now he's reading from the second portion of Isaiah here. It's the Messianic prophecies. But it's as if he were identifying himself with the words that he's speaking. He goes on. He has sent me to set the burdened and the battered free to announce this is God's year to act. Then he rolled up the scroll. He handed it to the assistant and he sat down. Every eye in the place was on him, intent. And he started in. Now you have heard Scripture make history. It came true just now in this place. And then once he's made this announcement, qua pronouncement, he begins his ministry in earnest. Moments later, maybe hours later, we can almost hear him call followers to help him with this mission. James and John, let go your nets. You're going to have to let go, Mr. and Mrs. Zebedee, at this point. Come and follow me, heaven only knows where. And we read immediately they did that. Peter and Andrew, waste no time, let's go. There's work to be done. There's an urgency about it. And to anyone and everyone who has even a wit of understanding that God is turning history on its ear, take up your cross and follow me. It's called discipleship. And it's done Jesus style. Today we gather together as a congregation in our annual meeting. It's a prime time to consider not only the discipleship of this wonderful cathedral, but our own individual discipleships as well. Where is it Jesus might be calling me, you, us? What form might it take in this new year? Knowing Jesus and the responsibility he announced for himself at the synagogue in Nazareth, I'm sure that our discipleship has something to do with those dimensions of bruised and battered life that beg out for love. Could it be, like for Jesus, following Jesus, a ministry of service to the poor, the weak, the sick, the lonely? Perhaps it's a ministry of enlightenment to those who are blind, a lightening of the load for those who are burdened, a removing of shackles for those imprisoned. Wherever the transformative love of Jesus Christ is so desperately needed, and the wherevers are way too numerous to mention, Jesus is calling. As a very young pew sitter in a little church over there on the shores of the Mississippi River, I used to hear the vicar read the offertory sentences on Sunday morning. And I was fascinated. I told some of you the other day that I'm pretty weird. I heard a speaker publicly say the other day that Episcopal clergy are weird, nerdy, and intellectual. So here I go. This was Mr. Denton, and I love to mimic Mr. Denton. He was about six foot seven. He wore a collar. We measure our collars in the, 
in a gradation called pontiff. I wear a pontiff too. He must have worn a pontiff seven because it stuck his chin up like this. He would say to, and I would, I, I memorized every word of it. I would say to my imaginary congregation, mimicking him, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves to break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, if you all ever need a stewardship preacher, and I believe you do, one who doesn't have to look at his notes and quotes text from the Bible in the style of a 17th century English divine, I am your man. Some of you had imaginary friends while growing up. I had an imaginary congregation. I used to rehearse the role of Crucifer using a broom as the processional cross. Weird as weird can be. There was another offertory sentence that Vicar Denton often used, and it really caught my attention, and it stayed with me all these years. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. Christianity is a behavioral religion. Oh, we've got our intellect and our theology, but it's a behavior. It's doing the will of the Father in heaven. Talking the talk simply won't cut it when it comes to citizenship in this realm. Walking the walk is where the rubber meets the road. You know, in ecclesiastical circles, we have a name for this. You've heard the word orthodoxy. It means right thinking. And we help move our congregations to right thinking, theologically. But what do we do about action? It's called orthopraxy, right acting, practicing the faith, following Jesus, heaven only nowhere, discipling him who says, take up your cross and follow me and do it now. Lately, I've been reading and watching, watching thanks to the wondrous invention called YouTube, a youngish evangelical minister whose name is Shane Claiborne. Any of you know? Maybe he's in the congregation. Would you like to come and preach? He is a firebrand of a preacher who urges his followers not only to study Scripture and find comfort in Scripture and perhaps learn to preach and to teach Scripture, but he says, go out and do Scripture most especially when it comes to Jesus' invitation to follow him, to follow him, where your enthusiasms and the world's needs meet together. Over the past few decades, says Mr. Claiborne, our Christianity has become obsessed with what Christians believe rather than what they live. We talk a lot about doctrines, but little about practice. But in Jesus, we don't just see a presentation of doctrines, but an invitation to join a movement that is about demonstrating God's goodness in the world. At times, our evangelical fervor has come at the cost of spiritual formation. For this reason, we can end up with a church full of believers, but followers of Jesus are really hard to come by. On this day when we conduct our annual meeting, look at ourselves, where we've been this past year, where we find ourselves today, where we think we might be going in the future. The gospel urges us to balance the inward look with that of the outward. We're here not only to faith, educate, console, and care for ourselves, but to do the very same and even more for others. 
even for those who have never heard of us, even those who can't pronounce the word Episcopalian. One of our former archbishops of Canterbury is alleged to have said, the church is the only institution on the face of the earth that exists for its non-members. Let me close with this. This is a quote from a theologian and a pastor named Emil Bruner. He made a statement that is often quoted when walking the walk as a disciple of Jesus. As we make Eucharist for this cathedral church, as we pray for guidance and direction in the days to come, as we celebrate our life together, his words may be very important. He said, the word of God which was given us in Jesus Christ is a unique historical fact, and everything Christian is dependent on it. Hence, everyone who receives this word and by its salvation receives along with it the duty of passing this word on. Just as a man who might have discovered a remedy for cancer which saved himself would be duty-bound to make his remedy accessible to all. Mission work does not arise from any arrogance in the Christian church. Mission is its cause and its life. The church exists by mission, just as a fire exists by burning. Where there is no mission, there is no church, and where there is neither church nor mission, there is no faith. Let's end with the collect once again. Give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ, to proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation, that we and all the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works through the same Christ our Lord. Amen.